Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 326. This is a special pre-Rosh Hashanah edition. The new year is upon us, Tovshin Pei Aleph, which a new year brings new keiches, new energy, new opportunities. But before we get into the details, let me tell you that the program is dedicated by Gloria Ben Benista Wortlieb in honor of Michael Ben Benista. The Alter Rebbe in Tanya, in Agedes HaKedus, Simin Yudalad, the 14th section, says the following. It says, before Rosh Hashanah enters, the entire world goes into a type of comatose state. The oil, the energy, the divine energy of the past year is beginning to recede. After that comes an Eir Chodosh, with Rosh Hashanah entering a new unprecedented light. He says, Eir Chodosh a double newness that never was here before. That's what Rosh Hashanah is about. It's completely new energy. He explains, that's why it says, Reishis is missing an Aleph. Reishis Hashanah is referring to Rosh Hashanah, and the missing Aleph is the Eir that recedes until the new energy, the new Eir enters. Now if you think just about that, it's just a powerful lesson in life. There's no such thing as monotony as the past. It's a new energy, a new life. Now the truth is, this originates from the Kisfe Arizal, who speaks about the Histalkus Ha'oyr before Rosh Hashanah, and then the new energy as well. But Alter Rebbe puts it in that language of unprecedented energy. So the challenge is to be a keli to it. How do we receive this? So anytime anyone asks a question, my life, I don't see change happening. I see myself trapped in patterns or routines or I'm bound to certain commitments that I can't get out of. And it could be evolved force. It could be your own internal psychological challenges. It could be family issues. It can be work issues. Many different situations. And we really feel that nothing will change. Comes Rosh Hashanah and says, absolutely incorrect. Here's an Er Chadash, a completely new energy. It's yours for the taking. You have to obviously do something to receive it and to maintain it. So that's lesson number one with Rosh Hashanah. Someone asked the question, it seems that we hear the same ideas about Rosh Hashanah every year. It's getting a bit redundant and meaningless. Can you share an original and important idea about Rosh Hashanah in honor of the new year? Reading that immediately pointed out the paradox. The whole point of Rosh Hashanah is newness. And here, people experiencing the same old thing. What does that mean? It means the way we're experiencing is the problem. When you do things by rote or mechanically or robotically, obviously, the robotics of Rosh Hashanah, yes, the day is coming, there's a certain time you light candles, you go to shul, the same prayers, the next day is uh, the blowing of the shofar this year. It's Rosh Shabbos, so not on the first day of Rosh Hashanah. The next day, again the prayers, the meals. So when you just go through those motions, it seems like just the whole same old thing again. But the whole point of Yiddishkeit is every day things should be like new. Chadoshim says sometimes like new or chadoshim new. That's every day, even every moment. The God is renewing perpetually existence every moment. Like Siddha says, Yem doesn't mean Yem, it means every Rega. Yem means every moment. And definitely in Rosh Hashanah, when there's a renewal of the entire contract. That's our challenge. So I guess I can share a new thought. But it's not about the thought, it's about how we apply it to ourselves. So here's the new thought. The new thought is the Alter Rebbe says this in the Gerasa Kedish. He said it hundreds of years. He wrote this 
hundreds of years ago when Tanya was written. Yet, but the newness is how are we going to apply it to ourselves? So that means we need to do something. We need to approach Rosh Hashanah in a new way. You can't expect newness if you're not going to behave in a new way. And that means either through studying or through prayer or through good deeds, not or, I would say all three, do something you haven't done before. Learn a new mimer, a new thought. Daven in a way you haven't daven before. Take one prayer, one tefillah, and with a deeper kavana. And give tzedakah, help another person in ways you haven't done. Not in the same routine. Something new. This creates a newness in your attitudes, your mindset, and your heart set, your behavior. So you're ready then to receive something new. Can the newness of Rosh Hashanah affect us even if we do nothing? With God's grace, everything can happen. But it's much more likely that if you, respond, if you're, if you are receptive and you create a receptacle, a keli. So this requires effort, yes, it requires some effort. Now this year, the year that we're, that we're leaving, which is the year of the pandemic, part of the year at least, starting around Purim time, and all its challenges... Besides the negative, there's the most positive part of it. It actually shook us up. It challenged our routines and patterns and our schedules. And even Rosh Hashanah, many of us are not going to be able to do the same way we do every year. So you can look at it as a negative. You can look at it as a positive. Maybe it's a way to remind us to be a little innovative. We can't go to shul, how to do it at home, or whatever other ways people are going to be praying and celebrating Rosh Hashanah. And same thing with the entire season. Afterwards, Yom Kippur and Sukkot and Sukkot So yes, there's the challenge in part, but the challenge forces us to be more personalized, it, to make it more relevant and not just go through motions. So that's the general approach of it. Rosh Hashanah, you talk about new, besides new information, there's so many Maimori Chassidus on Rosh Hashanah that... Um, I'm sure nobody has learned it all. And even if you learned it, there's always ways to learn it in a new way. There's always new nuances, new angles, new points. So I will share a few more ideas on Rosh Hashanah as we go along here in this special Rosh Hashanah edition. But I wanted to say that opening is the most important part. The second point, let me make, is very clear, is that Rosh Hashanah is not just another day. Besides the Er Chodesh, why Takas and Er Chodesh? Why is it, why, why Dafka and Rosh Hashanah? So it's true, it's a Rosh Chodesh, is the beginning of Tishrei, new month, is new Chodesh, is also Chidush, something new. It's the beginning of the cycle of the year. But Chogufa, why talk is that? So let's go back. What's the first Rosh Hashanah? The first Rosh Hashanah is the creation of the human being. Because on this day, the sixth day of creation, the first Rosh Hashanah was the, was the sixth day of creation, was Adam was created, Adam and Chava. Therefore, it's the collect, birthday of the collective birthday of the human race. Meaning your birthday, my birthday. And what is the point of the birthday? We were sent here for a mission. That's why we're here. That mission is renewed every year in Rosh Hashanah. Renewed. So the Er Chodesh, it comes hand in hand with that. That as the new year begins and the birthday is celebrated again, we are regenerating and renewing our relationship, our commitment, and the vote of confidence that God has in each person to fulfill their mission in this world. So it's a day of cheshben anefesh, of accountability and accounting, which is one of the greatest gifts of a human being. We are accountable because we have dignity. We have sanctity. We have value. And when you have value, you value every move you make and every action and every thought and every word. And that's why Rosh Hashanah is a day of cheshben on everything. Not as some people see it as a day of trembling and fear and uh, neurosis or whatever it's called. But it's a day of love. And when there's love, there's accountability. And when is the most important day to account? On a birthday when the new year begins, when the new energy enters. We're receiving a new energy, so we want to be accountable for what was happening till now and 
above all, to be accountable for what's going to happen next. We want to say we can deserve this new energy. We can deserve this, these new gifts and new blessings. And that is the essence of how we enter the Yomtiv. Of course, there's much more to be said, but the most important thing is applying it to life. You apply these two messages, the newness and our accountability, meaning rising to the occasion to fulfill our calling. So you have to ask yourself, what is my calling? What am I busy with? What, is, what am I busy with all day? What will I be busy with this coming year? What was I busy with last year? And, and no question that when you ask that question, you will ultimately find good answers how to improve your commitment, your, your calling, how to make it greater and better. And there is a purpose. The purpose is to refine your corner of the world, prepare it to be a dirbetachtenim, a home for the divine, prepare yourself, prepare the world for gula. Gula is not just some event, it's the fulfillment of the purpose of Rosh Hashanah. So whatever happened 5,780 years ago, entering 5,781, the year, is the fulfillment of why Adam and Chava were placed there in the first place. And we continue that marathon, and now we have our, our leg of the journey that we need to fulfill. So there's much to think about when you put it in those terms. Because it comes down to, okay, where do you stand? Ayeka, as God said to Adam, according to the Gemara, was on Rosh Hashanah as well. Ayeka, where are you? Where do you stand? What have you done with your life? Are you living up to your calling? This is the ultimate question. Another person writes, one reason we are taught not to blow Shef Er Rosh Hashanah is to trick the accusatory angels into thinking the high holidays are already over so they don't have to testify against us. How does that work? Can we really trick a spiritual being who is not limited like we are in the physical world? Do angels not have access to calendars? So just first a little background. Rosh Hashanah, of course, is a mitzvah sayyim b'shefer. We, we sound the shefer, except when it's Shabbos, which we'll soon discuss, like this year. So we don't sound the shefer, we just say the psukim. But Sunday we'll, we will blow the sound the shefer. As a hachanah to that, the minig is, the custom is, that throughout Elul, from the beginning of Elul, we sound the shefer every morning, every day. Except on Er Rosh Hashanah. And one of the reasons given is to confuse the sun. This same statement is said about a number of things. Why we don't um, say Rosh Chedesh on Rosh Hashanah, and a few other customs in order to confuse the sun. So the question you're asking is actually asked by the Rebbe in Tovshin Lamates in the year 1979. Uh, I should say 78, because it was still, it was Tovshin Lamates, the beginning of Lamates. And it's printed in Lukute Sikhah's Chedlik Chovdalet, volume 24. The Rosh Hashanah Sikhah asking exactly this question. What does this mean? Can't, can't see the calendar. Can't see that other things that Jews are doing that is coming Rosh Hashanah. Fine, so don't blow Shefer. And the Rebbe explains briefly, you can look it up there more in detail, that to confuse the Satan is you're confusing the Satan. What does the Satan want? He wants to weaken the Jewish resolve in being committed to God and wants to demonstrate in heaven that they're not doing their work. When he sees that they're not blowing Shefer before Rosh Hashanah, it's not just confusing with he. Of course he can look at the calendar, but he lets down his guard because two things. Either the Jews feel confident that they've already been victorious and therefore they could enter into Rosh Hashanah calmly, peacefully. That's why they're not blowing the Shefer. So even though the Sultan may know that as well, that that may be the reason, but the fact of the matter is, the bottom line is they're not blowing Shefer. So when you think of it this way, when your enemy sees you put down your weapon, he may, may, it confuses him. What does that mean? Does that mean that you finished the job? Does it mean that he doesn't have to fight you right now? So that confusion is what we're talking about, that it weakens his resolve and weakens his 
his attitude and his attack. In addition, the Rebbe says that confusing the Sutton could also be the other way around, that you're convinced, he's convinced that there's no, that there's no reason for him to challenge because they're not blowing Shafer. So it's either because they, he's, he's, he sees that they feel they've already confident, so there's no need for him to challenge because it won't help, or he feels that uh, they already, that since they're not blowing Schaefer, so bottom line is he doesn't have to challenge it so much. You can look in the Sikh in more detail. The Rebbe then says, at the end of that talk he gave, he gave and uh, published, says, at the end of the day, the Sutton knows that as well. That it's because of that reason. So what's going on? Well, as I said, the reason is because bottom line is even if he knows it, it's still confusing how much energy he should invest in it. How then can we deprive Jews of a, of a mitzvah? This is a minig, of blowing the shefer before Rosh Hashanah. So that explains when the Jews know they're not blowing the shefer in order to confuse the sutton, they, it strengthens their resolve and it strengthens their commitment going forward. So even a negative can be turned into a positive. That's briefly the Rebbe's answer. And, uh, and, uh, and explains many different things as well as he goes on there to explain the different reasons that, as I said, the different customs that are explained with this idea of, not, of uh, confusing the sun. Okay. With that, let us go to the next question. Why do we not blow shape when Rosh Hashanah falls out on Shabbos? So let's start with the, the, the Mishnah. So in the Mishnah, the Gemara says that when Shafer falls out on Shabbos, I'm sorry, when Rosh Hashanah falls out on Shabbos, the reason we don't blow Shefer is because of Gzeda the Rabba. Rabba made a Gzeda that because not everybody knows Hilchus, the, all the laws and halachas, a people can mistakenly carry a Shefer on Shabbos. So not to avoid that, Gzeda was that we don't blow Shefer. Same thing is spoken about by Lulav. Why we don't prevent Lulav and the Dal Minim on Sukkot that is on Shabbos. That's the halal, that's the din. The question, of course, is asked by the Alter Rebbe, how can you de- deprive Jews of a mitzvah that Isa? Shefer is a mitzvah in the Torah. The gzeda of Rabbah is a shvus, meaning it's not a direct mitzvah in the Torah. The Rabban came up with a, to avoid, to prevent people from, by, from carrying on Shabbos. So how could a, a weaker gzeda be mevatl, eliminate from us the mitzvah of Tekiah Shefer. And he answers, you have to say that when, Shefer, when Shabbos is on Rosh Hashanah, Shabbos accomplishes that which Shefer accomplishes usually. Because God forbid that we're deprived of a mitzvah. So on Shabbos, Shabbos itself has that power. Now Shefer, of course, is mamshach certain hamshachas. Shabbos has that power. When we say the psukim, malchus zechrenis Shefer's, we fulfill it through the psukim and the, on, on, uh, when it's on Shabbos. So then why do we blow the shefer on in, in the Beis HaMikdash? Because the Beis HaMikdash, we don't have that chashash. The Beis HaMikdash, you're talking about people who know the dinim. And also, it's a situation where you're not concerned about the gzera of Rabbah. So Alter Rebbe says, because in the Beis HaMikdash, because of the gili in the Beis HaMikdash, so Shabbos' so-called replacement of shefer is one level, there's a higher level of Shefer that you do in a base Amigdash. That's briefly the Alter Rebbe's explanation of the Kutateda, which of course can be applied to many other situations as well. This is the Rebbe uses, for example, when we don't say Tachrin on Shabbos, because Shabbos accomplishes what Tachrin accomplishes. Now, this still needs more explanation, because you could say that that's the case, why do you need to say the Rabbah? So just say, Shabbos has what Shefer does. So the Rebbe addressed this, actually, Yud Gimel Tishrei Tov Shin Mem. Because of time, you can look it up if you like to see more details on this whole discussion about Yud Gimel Tishrei Tov Shin Mem. Okay. The relevance to us is that this year, the first day of Rosh Hashanah is going to be Shabbos, like Shabbos. And as a result, we will not sound the Shefer. But, but just like I said with the irvu of the confusion of the Sutton, the lack of landing Shefer is not a, a lack, it's an addition. Something comes to us through Shabbos that 
fills that void or re- replaces and achieves that which Shefer would achieve. Now, what is Shabbos? Shabbos has a lot of different elements to it. One of the elements is, of course, Karasul Shabbos Enig, pleasure. So Shefer in general has many different, ten different reasons why we sound the Shefer. One of them, of course, is to pierce the heavens with the sound, the sound of a child crying to God. So the Shefer is the purest sound instrument reflecting the sound of the soul. So even though we don't actually sound the Shefer on Shabbos, that doesn't mean we don't cry out. And this cry is with the unik, the pleasure of Shabbos. So Rosh Hashanah has something unique this year. It's, it's true, it's not the only time. Every few years Rosh Hashanah comes out on Shabbos. It's not that common, but it's, it's, it's uh, fairly uh, common. But So this year offers us a new approach in blowing Shefer. Instead of blowing Shefer, we look at Shabbos, and we look to Shabbos to experience that which Shefer would have always accomplished. So yet again, a change that allows us to think a little more in a new way how to celebrate the holiday. Okay. With that, let us go to another question which is related to Rosh Hashanah. About perpetual creation. Can you please explain the concept that God recreates the world every moment, and if He would stop for a moment, the world would revert to nothingness? It's difficult for me to understand because, for example, if I built a house and completed it, and then I stopped building, the house would still stand and wouldn't revert to nothingness. Okay, so I refer you to the source of this concept explained by the Alter Rebbe in Shai Yechud Bamona, the second section of Tanya. And he addresses this exact question. The reason that the creation of the universe needs perpetual creation, because the universe does not have any substance of its own without that energy. Like he explains in the beginning of chapter 2 there, he says, as opposed, in contrast, to things that are man-made. Man-made, we don't create anything from scratch. You take a piece of gold and you reshape it into an ornament. You take wood, stones, and you build a home from it. The example you're giving. So what you're taking is one element or one item or several items and reshaping it into another. So obviously, since it was there before you were there and you're just reshaping it, so it's not going to disappear when you stop reshaping it. It'll stand because it has its own, uh, its own existence. But creation of the universe, the material world overall, meaning its very being, the actual wood and stones, not the reshaping of it, is what's called yesh ma'ayin. Why? Because it has no value or substance of its own. Nothing creates itself. So something put it there. Because it doesn't have any true value and substance of its own, without the creative energy within it, it will stop, it will cease to be. The example, you throw a stone. A stone, you don't create the stone, but to make a stone fly, you have to throw it. And the stone doesn't become a bird, it remains a stone. So as long as your energy is in that stone, the stone will continue to fly. As soon as the energy dissipates, the stone will fall. Why? Because it doesn't have any energy of its own, because it's not its nature to fly. Existence does not have any validity of its own from within. In that example. That's the brief answer. In relation to what we're discussing now, Rosh Hashanah, you could ask a question, so then what's the renewal of Rosh Hashanah if every second existence is renewed? So there's a few points. Number one, to introduce you to a concept called Chiddush Hayashenus. Chiddush explains that in renewal itself, there's different levels of renewal. You can renew something that's completely as if it didn't exist. But that's not how we, the universe is renewed. If you're 20 years old, when you're renewed, you don't start from, from, age, from day one again. You're renewed as a 20-year-old. Existence as we know it, the renewal is renewing the existence as it was. Every moment is perpetually renewed. So throughout the year, it's mostly chidosh which means... It's the, it's the new energy, yes, 
that is giving energy to a certain item or a human being or an entity, but it's renewing it on, its, on the way it is. In Rosh Hashanah, the Chiddush comes from a deeper place. It still renews us as we are. At Rosh Hashanah also we don't revert back to day one of our lives. An existence, what you, exactly you saw, the same existence that was there a second before Rosh Hashanah is on Rosh Hashanah too. But in the spiritual level, the renewal is an annual one. An Erchadosh Mechudosh, as I said earlier, an unprecedented energy. You don't necessarily say that by every moment. You say there's renew that, but you're renewing it commensurate to what it is. Think of it like breathing. Every moment you have to breathe. Leave a healthy person, exhales and inhales like 18 times a minute, 15 times a minute. You have to do that to renew the energy, to get new oxygen, release the carbon dioxide, and it's a constant process. But that would be called a renewal that would be on the ongoing basis. And once a year, imagine you suddenly breathe in a completely new state of fresh air. Ah, new opportunity, new possibility. So though in a microcosm that's possible all the time, but it's only in Rosh Hashanah that you have that type of overhaul, if you wish, a renewal of the contract, not just a renewal within the contract of the year. Every day, the day is renewed, next day, next day, next day, or a next moment, next moment. Okay, that's the key difference. In relation to applying it to our lives, goes back to the point I made earlier, which is the idea of life is not a monotonous, boring uh, series of uh, routines and patterns. There's newness everywhere. We just have to allow it to emerge. There's constantly new energy, and especially in Rosh Hashanah because it begins that whole new cycle, as I described. Okay. We've been talking about prayer each week. I dedicate a little question, one question, a little section of the program to prayer, being, being that in the month of El, the custom is to increase in prayer. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, the Yom Narayim stand out in their longer prayers. So here's another uh, question on prayer. Recently, you have been answering many questions about prayer. Here's my question. Are there things that can block our prayers from reaching God or block His blessings from reaching us? If so, how can we figure out what the blockages are and either repair or bypass them so our prayers can be successful? Thank you, and may you be written in the Book of Life for a successful and healthy 5781, and may there be no blockages in my blessings to you. Yeah, thank you very much. And the same to you, and same to everyone, to every one of you in this program. Obviously, I'll conclude with that bracha, but since you're blessing, kolam mevarach mezbarach, should be a blessed year of ksiva v'chsim teva, shana teva masuka, materially, spiritually, all in the best of health, many healthy long years, nachas from yourself, from your children, grandchildren, and, in the, and all of us living up to the fulfillment of our calling, which is the mandate of Rosh Hashanah. And it should be a year of Gula, a year of Gula, Pratis of Gula Klalis, Mashiach's coming. Okay. Very good question. And it goes back, I want to connect it now to the issue of confusing the sun. I, exp- I b- briefly shared the Rebbe's explanation, but it's a little, let's go a little deeper now in explaining what the Rebbe says. The question can be asked a step back. What is this whole thing of a Sutton anyway? Sutton, that's mechatrig, accusatory angel looking for ways to find the Jews' flaws. What is this? Why would God even create such a... If God loves the Jewish people, why did he create a Sutton? <clears throat> now the Gemara says a Sutton is the Yetzirah and the Malacham Sutton is the Yetzirah is the Malacham It's all one thing. The angel of death is Yetzirah. When you think of it that way, you begin to understand what's going on here. It's not like this Sutton suddenly appeared. It's a very deep purpose. The purpose is the Sutton is a result of the concealment of the Tzimtzum that allows for things not to be aligned the way God wanted it to be. Like Shvira Sakeli, 
The question is asked, what, God didn't know that the containers would shatter? Why do you allow containers to shatter? It's part of the plan. So it's not about the Sutton being up there and has power to Mukatrik. The Sutton is an outgrowth of all of existence. There's Zelu Umazeh. So here's the powers, the holy powers, and there's a negative energy. The negative energy is very much connected to ourselves. When your Yetzirah, and I'll define this on a personal level, sees that you're not blowing Shefer, so fine, it may understand all the deeper intentions, but bottom line is it lets down its guard. The Sutton is essentially the collective Yetzirah, if you wish. But the Yetzirah also, it says in the Gemara, Sutton, Upnina Lashem Shemayim is the Sutton was created by God, L'Shem Shemayim. The challenge, the challenge in us, like the example given in the Zayar, that a king, to see his, to, to bring out the, his sons, his child's greatest strengths, he challenges him. He sends a temptation to him. The one that's tempting him isn't interested in tempting him. He knows why he was sent. He was sent in order just that the that this child should overcome the temptation. So when we give in to the temptation, the Sutton itself cries. Why am I giving this job? That's not what I wanted to do. I'm an angel of God. I'm doing the mission. It's a very painful mission. That's what God wants. I'll do it. Same thing with the Yetzirah. The Yetzirah is not interested in us to follow it. But it was given a job and it does it loyally. So many ways it's about our choices. So when we do things that's so-called confused, what are we doing? We're confusing a certain... No, it's not a certain waiting around you're confusing him like some type of uh, cat and... Uh, what's the word I want to use? Uh, um, cat, and, cat and mouse game? Who's going to catch whom? It's about being conscientious and sensitive to the fact that they're negative forces and we don't want them to overcome us. So we do things, efforts to make sure that we get rid of all these blocks. And that brings me back to this question. Can there be blocks? God hears every prayer we give. We, we uh, pray to God. God responds to every prayer. We've talked about this a number of weeks ago. Sometimes you need more prayers because you need to open more doors. But there are possible blocks. We can be the worst. The worst enemy could be yourself. We can ask for something and then either not create the keli for it, like someone pray for, let's say, a livelihood. And then instead of going to look for a job, go to sleep. The blessing might be there, but you haven't made the, you need the basket, you need the keli. Because the blessings come together. And what you do. So the prayer has to come with an effort. Can there be other blocks? Yes. There's Ganva Pumachtatarachmonakari, for example. The Ganaf who prays to God to succeed in his stealing. So he's praying, the, the prayer is heard. But then he, not only does he make a keli, he doesn't even realize how inconsistent he is. He's doing something God told him not to do. I know that sounds like insane, but all of us have elements of that. We have to look at our lives and say, besides the prayer I said on Rosh Hashanah, or whenever I pray, how's my behavior? Maybe my behavior is blocking some of that prayer to enter, to, the blessing to enter into my life. So blocks are possible both directions either from us to God or from God to us. Not because God is not listening, it's because we need to do something about it. But every block, like the Sutton, is only meant to be a catalyst for us to overcome the challenge. So that's how we have to look at it. There's no such thing as a block just to be a block, period. That, we, don't, we don't say that at all. We have full control of removing blocks b- both ways, in our prayers to God and the, God's response to us. The fact that we don't always see that happening, yes, there could be deeper blocks, there could be greater challenges, it could be we didn't do enough, but the key thing to remember is that there's possibility blocks, and many of them we ourselves create, and there's always the ability to get beyond them. We have to try harder, maybe do something differently. That's the general response to it. So when you think of it that way, confusing the Sutton, not talking about confusing, you're talking about Increasing Aveda either by stopping something so the Sutton thinks, oh, too late for me because they finished the job, or they're not doing something so I don't have to put up a resistance. So it's all part of that process of how we maneuver. I remember once, just as an example, 
when I, I giving a, a for many years I've been giving a, a Wednesday night class, and I used to give it in my home. And then because it grow, grew and people wanted, I moved to the city. So as God would have it, the person who was driving me the first time to the class to Manhattan, there was a big lot of people waiting because it was like a big thing. It was like the first class I gave then in Manhattan. I'm talking about now in the 90s. So, I was, so he came late. And I was waiting. I thought I should take a cab, but he kept on telling me he's coming. Bottom line, we got late. We got there a half hour late. People waited. And I felt really embarrassed. So I began with a story that I uh, heard about a teacher, a rabbi, who would give a class every evening, 9 p.m. But he was always late. He came 9.15, 9.30. So the students said, you know what, maybe he has some things to do. Let's start the class 9.30. So give him more time. They started at 9.30. He started coming 9.45. They realized there's something going on here. Whenever they start, he always comes later. And this went on for a few years. Finally, at some point, everybody came, who came to realize that's what was going on. So at some point, they asked him. I think after, maybe after he moved or something, because he wouldn't say. That was the, I forgot that point. He didn't say why. He wouldn't say why. Finally, when, when either he moved on, he moved away to another place, so they asked him, why, why were you always late? I mean, is there some type of thing with you? So he said, no. When people come together, Jews come together to learn Torah, there's a lot of Gedusha, a lot of power there. So always, there's always the negative side. God always sends a challenging force that like wants to confuse or wants to uh, in some way distract us so since it was announced at 9 o'clock, I knew the negative energy would also come at 9 o'clock. So by coming 9.15 or 9.30 later, by that time, they, they didn't have patience, the negative energy. So it would either dissipate or leave altogether. So whenever you changed it, everyone knew that was a change. So I, and I couldn't say this because angels don't read our thoughts. So I just would come a little later. <laughs> that was my so-called opening and I said, this, <laughs> you can only use this story once. You can't do this every week. <laughs> and so obviously I did not come late every week. But I just thought to myself, very similar. What you're doing is, is not, it's not a game. It's, it's sensitivity. Sensitivity that sometimes something powerful is happening. And the way, by a few minutes delay or some other shift, you can confuse the negative forces to not exert themselves that much. Okay. I was debating whether to continue talking about the phone addiction and online addiction, and I decided I will, because even though it's true we're going to Rosh Hashanah and we can only talk about positive things and how beautiful we are, but as I said before, part of being a beautiful person and dignified person is accountability. And accountability consists of looking inside our hearts and souls. So again, with trepidation a bit, I felt I will continue talking about this um, because people are dealing with these addictions or these challenges, especially spouses, which is the question we're addressing here, are dealing with it even if it's before Rosh Hashanah. And maybe this is a good opportunity. New year coming, all of us can step back and say, Hashem, give me new kayach, new strength to deal with my challenges. Spouses should have more strength to deal with it as well. And going to Rosh Hashanah this year with a real, not just a resolve and a resolution, but really implementing it, saying, I'm really going to do a few key things. So that's why I felt, because I know people are some in despair, I've received, I can't tell you how many comments over the last few weeks speaking about it. Probably more than, I can't say more than all, but for one of the most amount of comments. So I see that people are suffering. Not that it surprises me. But when you see it, you realize it's an issue, Meruvim Sarche Amcha. And um, people are in need, so I felt it's appropriate to talk about. And I'm giving the disclaimers because of the reasons I just said. So we've talked about this the last few weeks. I've got a lot of, as I said, comments. I've read some of them. I'll read more. But before I do, I wanted to go back to one more letter about this topic. And I've been addressing it Obviously, here the question is from the perspective of the spouse. Some call the issue of uh, 
um, of codependency or enabling. And you have the Al-Anon, basically, what, if you're a partner, a spouse to someone who has an addiction, it creates a whole set of issues for the spouse who does not have the addiction. Because what are you supposed to do? Ignore it, fight. So we've been addressing this, and I've spoken about it two weeks ago and last week. So I want to read one more question um, about this issue and give it a few more minutes to address. And things that are not left, that are not finished, we'll leave it for a future program. Getting past husband watching inappropriate content. Rabbi Jacobson. Thank you for all that you do and put into this program. It has been a tremendous source of comfort to me during this tumultuous time in my life, hearing how far too many people struggle, how far too many people struggle with the very same issue. And your Hasidic approach to healing has been invaluable, so thank you. The struggle I speak of is pornography usage. A little while ago I discovered that my husband was watching it. My life turned upside down and in a way right side up. Many a tear and a hard conversation has been had since and our relationship is incomparable incomparable to what it was before. Our bond is deep. We love each other very much and have grown to respect each other as well. Our marriage is healthy and happy and beautiful, thank God. It's like my husband can see sunshine again. He is more present, attentive, gentle, thoughtful, upbeat, healthy, and whole than he has been since our wedding. Baruch Hashem, I feel extremely blessed to be married to someone so solid and beautiful through and through. I know actions speak louder than words, so though neither of us have spoken to anyone else about this, and we are definitely on the mend, at times something will trigger me, will trigger me and set me off. I feel like I have PTSD. That's a post-traumatic syndrome disorder. Breathing will become difficult. My heart will start racing and I'll fall into a dark slump. How do I deal with the past so it doesn't keep coming back to bite us? How can I ever be okay with what happened? And I know perfection is not a fair expectation, so how can I know it won't happen again? I'm not sure I can withstand it another time. Since my initial discovery of my husband's secret world, a world that without my understanding made him so distant from me, made him so distant from me, a world that left me feeling unloved, uncherished, disrespected, and like there was nothing I could ever do to truly make my husband happy. We were living together, but we could not be further apart. Since then, there have been a few slip-ups and recurrences. Each one breaks me yet again. I'm just so weary now. What can we do to mend all that's been broken? What should we do moving forward? I don't want to feel like there are all these things about my husband and our relationship, both past and present, that I can't allow my mind to think about in order for us to be okay. I want to deal with everything and be able to move on fully. How does one do that? How to fully forgive? How to fully trust again? What sort of disclosure is appropriate to request or expect from a spouse regarding all that's been done? especially being the only one who knows about this. What does dealing with the past look like in this situation? And what can realistically be expected for the future? How much should I be made to endure? How do I know if I'm just being vindictive and clinging to my husband's mistakes when I should really just be moving on and letting go? How do I know if I'm being too permissive and simply enabling him by always chalking it up to human error and saying we all make mistakes. Which mistakes cross the line and are completely unacceptable? Please, please share some insight. I would like to make things right to assist the man I was placed on this earth to assist. Thank you again for everything you do for so many people. May Hashem always give you strength to help the people He sent you to help. Okay. Well, So, uh, heart, um, what should I say, heart touching to read this, both sides of it. It's beautiful to hear about the love, the, the deeper connection you've made. 
but it's also very encouraging to see that you're not blinded and that you realize there are challenges. And your questions are right on. I am not going to profess that I have quick and easy answers. You know, this world is a challenging world. We're told. All the paths have danger. As soon as the neshama comes to earth and God makes us forget the whole Torah that we learned in our mother's womb and forget what spiritual life was like in heaven, we're faced with the challenges and we hope and pray that they should be minimal. But there's no one that does not have challenges in this life. That's the world God created. A in order to have a dirbitachtenim, but a tachtenim. Tachtenim means, it's a very strong word, tachtenim means the lowest of all levels of existence in the diminishment or the concealment of the divine. And that opens up all possible challenges. So it's very painful when we have to face those challenges, but we have to know that is the purpose of our existence. In Tani, he says, when he talks about a person dealing with his own challenges, that Ulai, it's possible that your whole neshama came down just for this. Not, God forbid, that your husband or anybody has a right to transgress, but the challenge you face was given to you because that's the purpose. So I would say, based on what I'm reading, without knowing more, I don't know who you you are, I don't know your life, I don't know your husband, and and even if I did know, I don't know if it's you, (laughs) You know, because there's no names attached, which is great. That's exactly what we want it to be, anonymous. But I will say, based on what I read, and the, between the lines a bit, the fact that you write both sides gives me a lot of encouragement. Because on one hand, you're not writing with, ho- with ho- hopelessness and helplessness. You opened up with very strong words about how your marriage has gotten stronger, the love, the connection, the depth of it. And then you write the other side. So to me, that alone that you have those two perspectives, that you're not giving up and saying, oh, this is terrible, I don't know what to do. On the other hand, you're not just glassy-eyed and saying, oh, my husband's great and it's all over, it never happened again and so on. That is the healthy approach to the challenges of this world, whatever they may be. It means we look at them, we know they're there, we don't ignore them, we don't deny them. And living in la-la land as if they're not there. On the other hand, we don't let them overwhelm us and we don't allow them to control our lives so I would say the attitude that you should take is continuing in this direction keeping your eyes open being very clear-headed at the same time continuing to do everything possible to strengthen the relationship I would say I know you're keeping it between the two of you it's probably helpful that you find a mashpia someone that you trust that you can confide in because there may be issues that you need to talk about, that you can't just talk about with your husband. Let's say, God forbid, there is a setback. Let's say you feel that he may not be being completely truthful. Not everything can be confronted, because he may deny it. So I think it's good to have the support of another person. It's not about breaching the confidentiality, it's simply having a say l'charav, someone you can talk to. But I think if you continue with the approach of our goal here is to build a healthy relationship, Remember, a lot of this type of behavior, and I'm not justifying, comes from people low self-esteem, bored, and other things. If they fill their lives with enthusiasm, with passion, with love, with connection, with healthy attachments, they don't need to approach, they don't need to, um, they don't need to stoop to unhealthy attachments. Because at the end of the day, it is an attachment disorder. So we're not justifying it. But there's no question, having love and beauty in life is a counterforce. The more light, the, it dispels even a little darkness, especially a lot of darkness. I'm sorry, a little light. Even a little light dispels a lot of darkness, especially a lot of light. So that would be the approach I would take. I don't know the level of your communication with each other. In other words, if something would happen, there'd be a lapse, God forbid. Would your husband share it with you? Would he not share it? So it's hard for me to comment on that. We don't have to suspect it, but at the same time, realistically speaking, being there was transgression in the past, there's always a concern. The hope here is, and this is what I really want to point out, especially if we go into a new year, is that your husband, together with you, 
make that type of connection. Maybe you should have a very serious conversation this week before Rosh Hashanah and say, let's talk about the last year, the last few years, where we're headed, and really make that connection even deeper than before. It always helps when a person feels someone else cares. We're not talking here about accusations or tell me everything you've been doing, but more on the, on the opposite. I, you and I are destined to be together as you write so beautifully. Let's make this connection better than ever. A new year is coming. Let's show Hashem that we are making a keli. And talk to me. Be open and let's be honest. You know, your husband feeling that there's a partner here that really loves and cares. I'm not suggesting it's just going to solve everything, but it definitely adds something in your arsenal, both of your arsenals, that give more, gives more strength. And it's a positive attitude and it's a, you, you, you get more committed when you feel someone is with you. Now, should your husband have a lapse? Should he come share it with you? He may also need to have to someone to speak to. I don't necessarily always believe that it has to be partners because it may hurt you too much. It may be too emotional. And it's not to be expected that your, your husband's therapist as well and detached. It's going to affect you. So this is something that has to be weighed case by case. But I believe some of the points I just made are vital and I hope are helpful to you and to anyone else listening to this that this can help. But always, as I said at the outset of this discussion, the way to deal with every challenge is through strength. You need to strengthen your own morale, your own self-esteem, your own, your own confidence, because that gives you the ability to deal with things in a very positive way and a strong way. Weakness debilitates, demoralizes, and it doesn't usually help given different situations. So the most important thing I encourage you to do is find that inner strength and say, okay, this is a challenge. Let me look at my options. Look at all options, from strong options to weaker options to middle in between, and always doing it with, a third, with a, another person that's objective can help because they can help weigh, and then you, you take step by step. And every situation is different. There are situations where people who were addicted in the past to inappropriate content and have cleaned up their act, and have cleaned for a long time, others who go back and forth, and others who can't clean themselves up. So every case is different. And you have to deal with the situations on the ground. And of course, this isn't just about you and your spouse, it's also about children, it's about generational. This is generational, this is not just a, a momentary issue. That's why it's so vital. And what better time as we go literally into the days of Rosh Hashanah, where God is giving us all new energy to deal with everything. And above all, never forget, the reason we came here is not to have challenges, it's to overcome challenges. The challenges are there for, the, for us to be able to dig deeper and find deeper strengths, to be able to deal with anything that comes our way. And anything can be dealt with if you go with the right approach. The worst thing is when you make mistakes upon mistakes, no, mistakes we all make, but the worst thing is when we, instead of dealing with the mistake, we compound it, we deny it, we cover it up. You must have that fresh air that attitude, that awareness, honesty, integrity. Perf trust is built not on perfection, but on accountability, which is the essence of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. And the whole Yom Kippur came after a tr serious infidelity by the Jewish people, where they betrayed God by choosing and building a golden calf, another God. They took Yom Chasanase, it was their marriage with God, and instead of God, they found somebody else. It happened to be a golden calf. So we learn much from that about betrayal, but then also about forgiveness. Yom Kippur coming after Rosh Hashanah. And these days, Moshe is on the mountain, is about the reconciliation, but not just reconciliation, a deeper connection than ever with the second tablets on Yom Kippur. So we will talk more about this topic. It's an important topic, vital topic. And um, thank you for giving me the opportunity to share, and I thank you for your kind words. And let's tackle it together. Okay, where are we now? So, as this program winds down, let me just see. I will do one quick follow-up. So last week we spoke about Chayel, we spoke about the Neshama Chadasha of the Alter Rebbe. So a follow-up question was this. We spoke last week about the Neshama of the Alter Rebbe. It being a Neshama Chadasha, a new soul. Talk about new. 
Would the Rebbe's not be one? Obviously, the Rebbe is, in, in, is Pashtusa of the Alter Rebbe, an extension of, like we say about Moshe, is Pashtusa the Moshe. Does he have the same neshama, meaning this new neshama? How does that all work considering then that all the Rabbeim would have this neshama and they were all they were alive at the same time? What's the pshat on this whole subject? Thank you so much. I really enjoy your weekly videos, podcasts. Okay. It's a very good question. Briefly. The Rebbe says, Nasich Yud Kislev, the Rebbe says that why did he write Shalshelos Ha'oyer on the cover page of all the Svarim of the Rabbeim? She says Shalshelos Ha'oyer, a Rebbe is Ha'oyer. He's a luminary, he's not light, he's a reflection of the lumen. She said because in Ha'oyer, in the Shtalshelos, there's no chain, there's no progression in Ha'oyer. Moir, all the rabbeim are one, as you write. In their oyer, we say the Alter Rebbe is Chochme, the Mitter Rebbe is Bina, the Tzemach Tzadik Das, and so on. So that's their oyer. So obviously they had different bodies, and they had a certain sense, they had, even though they all had one avoid, like Moshe Rabbeinu, the leader, a Nasi. But every Nasi has the challenges of his time, has the unique issues that he has to deal with. So the Teder Shalom, it says that the Alter Rebbe lived by the t- in time of Tanoim, he would have been a Tana. If he lived in the time of Amiraim, he'd be an Amira. But he didn't live in the time of Tanoim Amiraim. So then, in his generation, he did what he would do. If the Rebbe was lived in the time of the Alter Rebbe, he would be the Alter Rebbe. But he lived in a different time, different challenges. So on one hand, there's a common denominator, yes, the Etzem, Moir. And in that sense, you could say, yes, all the Rabbeim are one, and the Ir Chodosh, of the Neshama Chodosh of the Alter Rebbe, in effect, all the Rabbeim have that element. But then there's the specific Aved that each one of them had. And there, you don't say Neshama Chadosh on all of them. At least I've never seen it. Can you say the Rebbe's are Neshama Chadosh? You could say anything, but how do we know? And remember, not having a Neshama Chadosh is not necessarily a chasar. Everything has its role. The Alta Rebbe is, after all, the founder of Chabad. Chassidus. The Rebbe is not the founder of Chabad. Chassidus. As the Etzem Moed, he's yes a founder because they're all one. But in the Deir Ashvi, he's the seventh of, of the first, with his own qualities. So it's not a popularity contest either. Remember, besides the fact that they're all one, even in their extension, meaning each one in their particular Aveda, is still one chain. They all complement each other. So I hope that answers generally the question. As far as all of them being together when after Mashiach comes, we'll talk about that another time. Okay, with that, let me conclude with... A, um, we announced last week, excitedly, finally, after a long pandemic-induced, in, a pandemic-induced delay, we announced the winners of the sixth annual My Life Chassidus Applied Essay and Creative Contest. And uh, I'm very, again, happy and say congratulations to all the winners. To me, all, everybody, every submission was a winner. But I wanted to announce a few things. First of all, and that's an apology as well, when we uh, designated, after the judges went through all the essays, all the wonderful essays, so what we usually do is we take announce the first top 30. But this year, it was the top 34. And my mistake that last week, I did not announce the top four. But we did let everybody know of the top 34, that they are the, the final 34. So, to correct that, you know, as I said, all human beings can make a mistake. I am now going to announce the top the four that I, I neglected to mention last week. And my apologies, but uh, the value is there and intentions were all good. So I'm going down from from 34 to 31, and the 30 and up to one I did last week. So I'm not going to do that again, obviously. So the number 34 winner, meaning the 34 highest mark among hundreds of essays, I should add, was Shmuley Hecht, a student in Yeshivas Lebavish, Toronto, from Sunnyvale, California, age 19. His topic was, in other, world, in other words, I'm sorry, in other words, an exploration into the meaning of prayer and the purpose of words. Next, 33, was Kesem Mia 
Het Hetzrani, Chabad Shlucha, Cam Gan Israel Director, Children's Author, Houston, Texas, age 32. The topic was control within the chaos. 32. Chani Herzog, teacher at Labavitch Senior Girls School, London, England. Age 21, the topic was just not feeling it. And 31, Sarla Weinstein, student at MBCM Muncie High, Muncie High, Spring Valley, New York. The topic, the passionate life, adding vitality and joy into your everyday. Now we will be posting all these essays as we go along, because there are many of them. And you go to chsidasupply.com slash contest or slash essays and you can find all of those that are being posted. As I said, they'll be constantly being updated. If you go there now, you'll find the top ones and uh, they are really intriguing and fascinating to read as well as the, the creative ones to view or to listen to or the different formats, the art forms that were used. In our tradition that we've been doing the past years, I'm actually going to review essays here, each program. So I'm going to begin now with two essays. Well, one essay and one creative, the top winner. So the top winner of this year's contest was Miriam Goldberg, a $10,000 first prize a teacher at MMSC Day School in Seattle, Washington, age 24. And her topic was, the grass is greener, is greenest, the grass is greenest on your side. And just to read briefly, give you a summary, it's posted, as I said, at chassidusapply.com, the winning essay. And of course, touches upon the topic that very often we feel that we missed out on something or we feel jealous of someone else having more success than us. And addresses in a very direct way from a Hasidic approach how to address it, how to deal with this issue. And just struck a few points that struck me in this essay was how she framed it as an approach with dealing with different steps. Based on Tanya chapter 27, calling it the ideal perspective Number one, you're here to serve a purpose rather than to be served. Ideal perspective number two, God is the only one you need to impress. Later, in continuing to develop the different causes that people have for looking elsewhere for satisfaction instead of looking at their own destiny and their own calling, with many, many practical tips, really good tips. So, more perspectives. Every life situation has its pros and cons. There's no such thing as objectively the best or worst situation in life. Another perspective, your particular life situation allows you special opportunity. And throughout this essay, which, as I said, is an excellent essay, we're no surprise that it won the first prize, even though I must say it's sometimes very difficult because there's so many excellent ones. But at the end of the day, you go by each detail. So another perspective, things would be very wrong if you try to mimic and live someone else's life. And finally, God sends you the perfect set of circumstances to ultimately bring you the greatest success. So I definitely encourage you to read this essay, this winning essay. We will, as I said, as we go along in the coming programs, cover more essays. And now I want to go over to the creative, a new track that we started this year, which was like a beta just seeing how it works, and we were very, very impressed. People from all backgrounds, submitting, instead of an essay, a creative piece. It could be poetry, it could be music, it could be a video, it could be a combination, it could be calligraphy, it could be uh, tapestry, uh, sculpture, you name it. So the top winner this year, $1,000 winner, is Chaim Bell, teacher at Leeds Morris School, Leeds, UK, age 63. The topic was the return of the exiled Prince. So, I'm not going to. It was, it was a screenplay, basically a script. Excellent. So, I'm just going to read briefly the summary of like the overview of the script, and then you can look it up online again. Chassidusapply.com. It says this play it was a play. It was mainly based on a mimer 
of the Rebbe, of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, delivered on his birthday, Yud Aleph Nissen, the year Tov Shin Lamed Aleph, 1971. The Rebbe describes and explains the unique and special relationship between Hashem and the Jewish people. In the mind of the Rebbe refers to three Mashalim examples. The example of a country hosting a king and his dignitaries. The example of a visitor to a place diverted from reaching the presence of the king by the appeal of beautiful chambers en route. The example of a king's banquet in which all the subjects and even other creatures get something to eat, but the place at the table next to the king is reserved for his son who wants only to be with the king. Our play is structured around the above-mentioned examples, plus an example from Tanya of a king visiting a lowly subject in his hovel. hovel. How is it possible for us to achieve the level of the servants who serve their master without the intent of receiving reward? We are taught that this is within our grasp, because every Jew is imbued with the spark of godliness. When activated, this spark reminds him of his source, reconnects him with his inner being, and nullifies self-centered, extraneous considerations. I was extremely touched, I have to say, reading this script, but also looking at all the creative submissions, as well as the essays. Just imagine people putting hours and hours of their energy, with unique ingenuity and creativity, addressing a situation with empathy, sensitivity, and all taking it from chassidus. I mean, what greater way are we fulfilling the mandate that Rabbeim gave us? So I just thank you all from the depths of my heart for doing this. I feel we're all partners, and may your effort be that final step that tips the scales, like the Rambam says, and brings Shurabad Sala, both personal and global redemption. Everyone should have a Ksiva Vechsima Teva, Lashana Teva Masuka, a very sweet, healthy, blessed year, healthy, stronger than ever, get through whatever challenges we're facing collectively or individually. Every concealment is in order to bring a greater revelation. And it truly should be a year of the Teheshnas Ployas Arenu. Wonders, seen wonders, the wonders of the Gula Amitis Vashlema, a Rosh Hashanah like no other, because it will be unique in that sense that we finally, finally finish the job and the Gula with Mashiach Tzedkenu and the Rebbe and all the Rabbeim and all our loved ones, the fulfillment of the Eibishter's Kavona, of Kavona Sabriya that he created 5,781 years ago, the creation of the human being to make that Dirbe Tachtenu, the home for the divine in this material world. Again, a good Geben Shtiyar. Interestingly, this program, because of this Kvies, every Sunday is a Yom Tif. So the next four Sundays is Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Shemini Atzeres, respectively. So, I will, so uh, though I'll miss you, and I hope you miss me as well, but it's for good cause. May we use the energy of our being together, learning Chassidus, Teireh, all the Aveda that we do, which be a transformative holiday season. And we'll see each other soon. Please keep on asking your questions. My Life, Chassidus Applied, www.chassidusapplied.com, where you can ask every question, see all these essays. Again, good gebenched yash. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com slash donate.